everybody. It's time for another episode of the DC Comics News Podcast. Not bringing you the news as you might expect. We've got a special opportunity to sit down today with the amazing Steve Orlando. Steve, how are you today, sir? I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? How are you folks doing? <laughs> doing pretty well. By folks, it's not just me, your host, Seth Singleton. I'm also joined by the amazing Miss Kendra Hale. Hello, hello. And the amazing Mr. Brad Felicki. Hey, hey, nice to meet you, Steve. It's great to see all of you. Thank you. Uh, we know that time is an issue, so we're going to dive right in with an amazing creator, start off with some great questions, enjoy some great stories. I don't want to be the one to just hop right on. So, Kendra, I'm going to turn the first question over to you. And then, uh, Steve, if you're happy to get in with us, thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule today. Man. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Kendra, you're up first. Wonderful. I am so excited. Thank you so much for joining us, Steve. I actually have a question about the most recent book to come out, which is uh, Commanders in Crisis. And uh, all of us had the chance to read it. <laughs> That's great. Um, I actually, please just tell, tell everyone who's going to be listening to this, what is Commanders in Crisis and what makes it so special? Uh, Commanders in Crisis, well, first of all, just after being at DC for six years, uh, which I was very thankful for, um, it's my first truly independent launch since before I joined in late 2014 uh, as slash 2015. So I've done some other uh, creator participation gigs, of course, some original ideas, but this is me starting something that I completely own with my co-creators, of course, Studio Arancia and Davide Tinto. Um, but... I'm taking everything I learned at DC and hopefully folks love that I learned at DC and I'm applying it to my own world, uh, which kicks off with this book and it's just going to keep growing. And there's no rules, you know, uh, there are, the great thing about working on icons like Batman, Superman and Wonder Woman is that they have an 80 year history and they're incredibly well known, but from a storytelling sense that could sometimes also be the hindrance, you know, like if you want to do something really shocking and bold with one of those characters, you know, it's, more people than just you uh, have to be consulted on that decision. So with Commanders in Crisis, if you thought that I had some wild ideas at DC, well, now no one's ever gonna tell me no. So for folks that especially liked my Martian Manhunter work, uh, for folks that liked what I did with Gerard Way on, on Milk Wars, uh, we're going even further than that, you know, we're, we're, and, and we're telling a story that hopefully, um, gives you that sort of scale and grandeur of an event comic uh, like you have for the big two, but with ideas that are wholly, wholly original with no boundaries in place. So we can just go further, harder, faster, uh, and in a more provocative fashion. That's exciting. And you definitely get to see that in this comic. So thank you as a new fan signing on. I have already started getting my comic shop to bring me the different covers so that that way I have it in my pull folder. So thank you for that. Uh, Brad, do you have a question? Yes, I, I do. Uh, thank you, Stephen. Thank you for doing this. Um, my question is also about uh, Commanders in Crisis. Uh, hope seems to be a, a theme that runs throughout the first issue. Uh, and, uh, and, I'm, and I'm assuming the whole series going forward. Uh, given what has happened in the real world this year and, and even going further back than that, has your opinion on the importance of hope or your own 
level of hope that you have, has that changed since you started writing this comic? Well, I mean, it hasn't changed because I started writing this book early this year. Uh, and so we were already deep in it. But I think it's more important than ever. You know, I, I think that as you see in the first issue, the, this idea that we are trying to basically bring a concept back from the dead. I mean, it's not, sometimes comics aren't subtle. Uh, <laughs> and, and that's sort of the, the pleasure of pop culture is you can sort of, you can, you know, you weave characterization in a subtle way, but you can also scream your themes in bright neon uh, because these are, you know, electric superhero characters. So look, it's super important. Uh, the concept of empathy is something that I think is clearly lost uh, by people in power uh, to varying degrees, but honestly, almost all of them. Um, but obviously to a greater degree for certain folks. Um, so yeah, I, I think that hope is important, empathy is important. And what I can do is try to tell a story that, that, that doesn't make things simple or easy, but really interrogates that. And that's what ultimately we're doing in Commanders in Crisis. Uh, you know, through the lens of this huge event style storytelling, uh, but at the same time, like, it's about a team of superheroes trying to figure out how to keep the world going once empathy is dead. And when you say it like that, well, you know, it is kind of like the modern moment. And, when we're doing our job well, uh, to me, that's what superhero comics should be doing. That's what pop culture in general, uh, and science and speculative fiction specifically, should be doing. Great, thank you. And Seth, do you have a question? I do have plenty, and I'm going to try and squeeze as many in as I can. So, Steve, uh, once again, uh, thank you. And, and my question is going to wrap us back around. Um, to uh, DC Comics in a bit, but they've already started us going on this great conversation about Commanders in Crisis. So I'm gonna stick with that question, which is you've introduced two really great premises that I, I really loved as soon as I started reading the intro. The first is how do you create a series that's in a moment of crisis, introduce these characters and make people care about them immediately so that the story can move forward with the impending crisis and what the value is for that. Now we, we've, understood crisis in all the different ways that it's appeared to us in comics and in real life. But you've also chosen a great thing in that you're telling this story through a group of survivors who are all the last remaining members of their worlds and are now working to save this world. I love both of these ideas. I wonder if you could expand on them for me a bit. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, well, <laughs> I think one leads to the other, to be honest. You know, the, <laughs> I'm hopeful. <laughs> the, 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 the well-formed question, the challenge of any book, whether it's a new character or an existing character, is to really figure out the core of who they are and what makes them relatable. You know, so on one level, it's like, yeah, how do you do this with new characters? But something I had to learn at DC in general is that just because me, like a DC super fan who can recite who's who, you know, while doing jumping jacks and eating a sandwich, uh, just because I love a certain character doesn't automatically mean that everyone does. In fact, if they're sort of under underappreciated, I had to realize that there's a reason for that. It's not just about putting them in a story. You have to sh find what made you love them uh, and then tell a story that capitalizes on that. So with a thing like, in my opinion, the challenge of a book like this 
is the same as a challenge of a book like Martian Manhunter, because I've always thought he was one of the greatest DC characters. The change for me was not being like, oh, if I just do a book, it's not if you build it, they will come, you know, because if that were the case, him appearing elsewhere would have made people think like I did. Um, it's that you have to build it in a new way that, that, that shows your journey as someone who came to love them in a broader sense. So I think that that challenge applies to my DC work and the case of Commandos in Crisis, it's about finding scenes that are as concise as possible that are sort of feces on the characters so that when you finish even the first issue, you know who these people are. Maybe you don't know everything about them, but you know enough. Uh, and, and I think that applies to them being survivors of the multiverse. You automatically know that there's shared pain in these characters and that they are striving to overcome almost unimaginable loss. And that in 2020, but in almost any moment, that's something we can all relate to. We've all had to do that. So it's not really something that's just out of my playbook, you know, the, the, Having, having characters who find heroism out of great personal loss is um, admittedly an easy card trick. It's, it's the way that DC has taken a lot of their Silver Age characters that in the past were seen as somewhat, uh, somewhat less relatable than quote unquote Marvel characters or a character like Batman. And they've essentially done a Batman or a Marvel on their Silver Age characters. People like Barry Allen, who used to just be a good guy who does the right things is the right thing to do. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that, by the way, but they added that layer of, well, you know, he lost his mother, he's trying to solve her unsolvable crime or a murder forever. Same with Hal Jordan. You know, you know they, they slept on the loss of his father uh, because rather than just being a hotshot pilot who is, you know, essentially uh, a libertarian dream, uh, now he's doing all those things as a way to overcome the thing, the, the trauma of his childhood where he saw his father blow up. So that is all to say, like, this is a common, uh, a common move in our, in our creator's playbook, but it's common because it works. You know, the most iconic characters in comic books, we love them uh, and they're relatable because of the things that they've overcome. Batman and lost his parents, or even more so Spider-Man, uh, a character that I think almost everyone has been chasing after from a, an emotional arc standpoint for 50 plus years. So the way you do it in something like Commanders in Crisis, as I said, you secretly, I think we're asking the same two questions in one because having them experience that loss and be strangers in a strange land in a new area, era, especially in a big event book, that's shorthand we all understand. We've all been somewhere new. We all haven't known the world or the culture, you know, anytime we leave our house. So um, by putting that on there, knowing that we had this big book with new characters, the hope was that would give something, people something to latch onto. And yeah, we're gonna do more character-focused scenes, of course, over the next 11 issues. You did catch on to my uh, asking two questions in, <laughs> in the one, and, and thank you for covering those. I think the thing that really sticks out for me is that while it's a great you know, play and it's a well-known play, it's all about the execution. You can have any different team execute something and how well it's done is sort of a, an example of the mastery that you can use something like that, make it feel original and develop this original story from that and yet not have it feel forced, not have it feel uh, contrived in any way, but have it feel authentic, uh, very organic. And I feel like that's a, a depth of skill that, that you really demonstrated so well in this. So hearing you talk about it was just a great opportunity to understand that uh, in your own words. I really appreciate that. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, 
My, my pleasure, man. I'm going to go ahead and turn it back around to Kendra. This was really, like I said, my first introduction to you, which is really strange because I see that you've been, like you said, all, I mean, basically playing the field with DC and Image and Boom. And I mean, you've been, been there and it's, it's almost like I never even knew it. And I feel bad for that because this first issue caught me and it caught me hard. Um, well, don't feel bad. That's okay, Kendra. Uh, I, I'll, I'll send, I'll send, I'll, I'll send a, uh, in my opinion, curated list of things that I, that you should check out from DC. That's, that's <laughs> good. Please do. I mean, Martian Manhunter, Martian Manhunter and Batman in the Shadow crossover, both collaborations ahead with Riley Rossmo, I think are the two best things I've done at DC. Uh, you know, I'm just, in that sense, I'm just one person. You know, there's uh, my, my I opinion. I agree too. But those are the things <laughs> that I would point people towards. But for me, I mean, I think that's a little bit of, not, not necessarily humbling, but I mean, it, it's a good thing for me to be the one on here who, who hadn't heard of you, who hadn't read anything by you. Because for this one to be the, for, for Commanders in Crisis to be my first, I love it. And my question, I think, has somewhat already been answered, but I would still like to hear it in your words. You said that, you, you know, you basically have gotten to take the reins off when you're writing over here for Image. And you don't have to, to kind of report to anybody. How is it, has that been easier to create the world since you don't have any reins? Or has it made it harder because you have infinite things you can do uh it's just different you know because and, and i know that's kind of a cop-out answer but but it's true like i honestly i love a challenge so as long as the framework isn't constantly changing uh like i, I love having some rules like i really enjoyed the challenge of working at dc and i still do because I'm, I'm coming back in december and for, for some other things that aren't announced yet um so yeah like there is you know, I was on Wonder Woman on and off for a couple of years, and there's a challenge to that and how you tell a new story with a character that's 80 years old, especially someone with inbred, or excuse me, inborn contradictions, being a warrior for peace. Um, so I like that challenge. And at the same time, when you, when you have no rules, the challenge is, well, don't, you know, don't follow your creativity, but to be frank, from a utilitarian, like, creating is still work and we're providing a product standpoint, don't go so far up your ass that nobody knows what the hell is going on. And it remains to be seen, you know, let's talk, talk to me after issue 12 if I've done that. Um, <laughs> but it also gives me a freedom to do things that I could never do at DC. You know, I did, a tw I, I did a Twitter poll and I engaged social media to admittedly create a B-list villain, but you know, um, I wanted to have like a King Shark type character and on DC I can never just be like, hey, here are four animals, Twitter, and 24 hours decide who this character is for me and be part of this book. And I could do that uh, on Commanders in Crisis. And the result, by the way, was Bourgeois Swan, who's going to be appearing later. Uh, the internet picked Swan as one of the most surprisingly mean animals. And so there's going to be an anthropomorphic swan in the book. Uh, Bourgeois is something I added. It just seemed like it fit. Um, so yeah, there, there, there are tons of things that I could just never do at DC because I'm sort of the start and end of, uh, of the book, along with my partners at Studio Arancia. And, you know, it, that goes into the story. It also goes into the, um, you know, the types of covers we're doing. I'm doing a New Yorker style cover. I'm doing a cosplay cover. I'm doing a, a drag cosplay cover, um, a pixel art cover, things that you never, I could never get over the plate at DC. And maybe some of them will be failures, you know, but I, I've never seen them in comics before. So why the f should I not try? And, and that's exciting to me that we can do that on this book. I'm excited for a drag cover. 
That will be so sick, and I will make sure it's in my collection. That's epic. Thank you. Dad, yeah. you have the next one? Uh, yeah. So, uh, so, Steve, you kind of have a reputation, and you're so good at um, addressing social issues in uh, in your work, uh, whether it be, you know, representation, sexuality, any number of things. Uh, is there any, so this is kind of a two-part question, are there any characters that you haven't worked with that you would like to in that context? And do you find addressing those issues easier with characters you create or characters that have already been established? Just to confirm, this is, uh, this is like, Queer characters I don't want to work with, or characters in general. I'm well, just well, well. E I, I guess either way. Is there any character that maybe you think that hasn't been examined in that queer lens that should be, or do you find those issues better dealt with with original characters? No, I don't think it's one or the other. Um, as always, like it seems like that's always my cop out answer, but it's true because the answer is never, oh, if you want a gay or queer character, just make a new one, or oh, just make a big character queer and have them come out. It's both because they mean different things. Uh, you know, in this hypothetical world, and don't come at me in the comments because again, it's just a hypothetical world, but it's different to create a new queer character at a company like DC or say like Green Arrow is gay, um, provided supported by the story, huge caveat. but. They're different things. Uh, one is starting a new legacy, and the other is, is a commitment to a character who already has a cachet uh, and saying that we care about this enough that we are, we are, we are blending this uh, new part of culture into this 80-year-long monolith that is this character. So, so I think they're different things. Um, that said, I mean, this is maybe a little bit of a deep answer, but I, I'm, I'm going to go into it. You know, people gave me a, a fair amount of acclaim. I'm never going to say a lot. Uh, a fair amount of acclaim for sort of, quote unquote, re you know, saving uh, Gregorio de la Vega, formerly Extraño, uh, in Midnight and Apollo. Uh, and that's a character that I felt a lot of responsibility to because he was the first out character at the big two, out gay character at the big two. A North Star debuted before him, but came out after him. So... Uh, he's commonly called that, and yeah, he debuted before, but he wasn't actually stated to be gay until after Extraño. And so he was a, definitely a caricature in the 80s. Um, and so when I put him in Midnight at Apollo, yeah, quote unquote, I butched him up a little bit. I basically told the artist to make him the, the Dos Equis man meets Doctor Strange. And, you know, people were really excited. Oh, Steve, you made him like, you made him like a wizard daddy or whatever, phrases that I can't say without laughing. And I think, and I was happy to take him from what I consider to be a caricature into something a little more multi-layered. But the next step for me, and I'm not, maybe not even the person to write it is, I almost think now, you know, five years on, that it was almost an overreaction. You know, I've had people say, well, there's nothing wrong with being quote unquote flamboyant, and they're correct. There's nothing wrong with being uh, more feminine, uh, less, less traditionally masculine, all of those things are absolutely right. And so, I think that there's a lot more work to be done with that character. I don't know if I'm the one to do it, where you see that, where you watch his internal journey and you canonize all of it. And, and you probably come out with a version after where he was in a period of overcompensating for how he was in the eighties. And eventually the form that comes out is, is a blending of the both. Um, and, and that's something that's happened with my own realizations, my own sort of ingrained uh, queer phobia that I've conquered in the past six years. Uh, and so, I think that there's a next step for that character that's really fascinating that 
doesn't necessarily overwrite the way he acted in the 80s, but claims it, at a, claims it as a positive and repositions it. And I would love to see that. But I may not even be the person to do that. Because as my agent told me, I'm the queer bro of comics. I don't know if that was offensive, uh, but I get told that a lot. So someone should be doing that. I think it needs to be there, but maybe it's not me. Oh, thank you for that answer. It's great. Uh, Seth? <laughs> Steve, I'm going to come back around to something that you said, which I wholeheartedly agreed to and still wanted to get my Commanders in Crisis question out of the way. Now that it's done, I really loved what you did on Martian Manhunter. You took a character that I had always uh, had a deep affinity for, just really heartfelt. And you showed me things about him that I made me love him even more. Giving him a background that that kind of reinforced this desire he had when he came to Earth and drove him through these two stories you were telling. I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about your inspiration and your process of developing this story behind John Johns and the life that he had as a police officer and one with questionable ethics at the time and then how you're able to you know use that in telling these two stories that made this 12 issue maxi one of the things that I just love so wholeheartedly. Well, thank you, first of all. Uh, it is my favorite thing that I have done at DC, and it probably will be um, for the foreseeable future. Um, well, for me, honestly, to bring it back to a question you'd asked earlier, I didn't think that John had had the, the sort of attention paid to him that had been paid to characters like Hal Jordan or Barry Allen. Uh, and, and they're all Silverage characters that you know, to be frank, I loved, but their initial characterizations were somewhat flat. You know, he was a cop on Mars and he was a good person there. Then he came to Earth and he was a cop on Earth and was a good person here. Hmm. Uh, and Barry Allen was a cop and was the Flash because, you know, it's the right thing to do. And there's nothing wrong with those things, by the way. Uh, but but there, I, I thought that we could give him, we could, we could give him an arc similar to the one that makes everybody relate to to Peter Parker. And that is not to say that we're gonna, you know, have him throw a wrestler off a balcony or whatever. Um, but the fact is, is he, you know, people relate to Spider-Man because of that, that the mistake and, and then essentially overcoming it. He's not perfect. It's not as though he was perfect, got powers and became even more perfect. So with Martian Manhunter, uh, we toyed with how to give him that journey. He's already losing his family, uh, but it never really seemed, except within the, in the Ostrander and Mandrake series, which I love, nobody ever really seemed to unpack that uh, in, in a way that I found satisfactory. You know, he was the guy like joking around eating chacos, which you can be obviously, but people hadn't seemed to examine his pain in the way they had like Superman losing his family, for example. So we wanted to do that and have him make him have something to learn. You know, we started asking questions about the character. Why would he be hiding in the body of this detective uh, on Earth? Why would he, you know, why would he be basically being anyone but himself in the eras that he has like 140 secret identities? Loved that, by the way. <laughs> um, and so it was about, yeah, like he is... And it was about the line too. Like he is, when the solicit came out and people said and saw that he was gonna be corrupt on Mars, everybody was like, oh, Steve, you're ruining the character. And you know, as you see, like, he's not like, he's not like Ray Liotta, you know, like he's, he is cutting corners, but he's cutting corners because of the realities of being a policeman on Mars and he's doing it to support his family. 
Uh, and he's not like cheating on Mariah. He's not doing those things. He, but yeah, he's making questionable moral decisions for what he sees as an ends justify the means scenario. And it's only, and as he gets further and further down, like many of us, when we make compromises uh, to our morality or questionable decisions, like he keeps putting band-aids on, keeps putting band-aids on, keeps trying to keep the house together and eventually it falls down. Uh, and that's the lowest point in his life for him. And so we were trying to tread the line of making him still someone you could root for. You know, it's not like he's throwing Mariah and Kim into the fire and being like, fuck him out, you know? Um, <laughs> but at the same time, he's got to have something to learn. Uh, otherwise, there's no character arc. And, I, and, and giving him a truly satisfying heroic character arc was our goal with that book. I thought you did it wonderfully. It's a great addition. And I, I love that you, in your description there, you pointed out one of those great things, which is you want to build these series of unsustainables that eventually are going to come crashing down. It's just how far can you keep extending it, which was something that I really enjoyed about that. You know, the first questionable to the second, and then it just compounds on upon itself. And like you said, the band-aids eventually are going to come off. It's gonna come crashing down. It was a beautiful series and I really appreciate you going in depth there. Thank you. Uh, guys, I, I know we're getting tight on time, so I'm gonna run it through for uh, one more question for all of us. Kendra, you're up next. I'll make mine really easy then. At least I hope it's easy. Um, of the, the team that you guys have created for Commanders in Crisis, um, do you have a favorite character that's easy for you to write right from their point of view is there someone that you you kind of touch with more than the others um well quick two-part answer because i know that we're, we're trying to keep it moving but uh i mean my favorite character is originator but i wouldn't say that she is easy for me to write there's not a lot i have in common with her it's one of the reasons if we ever did a solo i would work with a co-writer um but that said she's based on kamala shamsi one of the most profound influences on my writing life uh and one of my professors from college so and also her power to me is just a combination of a lot of things i like uh that sort of the the black bull type person who's every 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 word could be damaging uh and the sort of wild creativity of someone uh someone like uh like a jesse custer who can control people with his with his voice. So I love her powers and I love what she stands for, uh, but I wouldn't say she's easy for me to write. It's very hard for me to write. Uh, she's just based on someone who's a strong influence on me. And obviously as it goes, like I'm still me. So prize fighter is someone I love writing. He combines a lot of things that I already enjoy. Uh, he's probably a bit of a queer bro himself. I'm sure many people would say that. He's got the UFC wraps on his hands and a pro wrestling belt. Uh, both things are very close to my heart. Um, and so it's, it's very pleasing for me to be able to work with him. And, you know, the, the, the trinity of this world, when they start to come to the forefront, is really exciting for me, true, uh, for, for me too, as you'll see as the series goes on. Thank you for that. I'm really, really excited to see it going forward. Brad, you're up. Uh, this is something I like to ask uh, with artists such as yourself that have worked with both creator-owned as well as established characters, kind of like I talked about before, but what are the pros and cons of working on your own project, your own creator, own characters, as opposed to the established characters? Well, it's, well, it, 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 the pros are the negatives. There's no rules and that, uh, that is both exciting and it can also be intimidating. Uh, so, you know, again, if you're working on and I just saw that we up, 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 excuse me, updated to unlimited minutes on this. So if we need to go a little longer, that's fine. Um, 
Thank you. You're awesome for that, man. <laughs> if, you're on, if you're working on Wonder Woman, you know what a Wonder Woman story is broadly. And yeah, that is both a, a cage to work within uh, a confinement, but it also, like, you know how to do page one, panel one. But how do you know what that is on your own story, you know? So, so, so the, there's, the freedom can be intimidating, um, but also like once you sort of, you realize that building a story is building your own requirements. So you have to, you realize you have to set the rules. You know, you are the William Marston of this book. You know, the, the, the person who set the rules for Wonder Woman or Batman, you know, you are the finger and cane of this. Uh, and, and then, and you realize you still have to do that and set the rules. So it's, it's different as I said, but, um, Ultimately, like, I think it ends up being very similar. It's just about who does what, you know, if someone else wrote these characters, well, then I would be the one, you know, they'd still be working through the rules I set. So it's just really about knowing where you are in the timeline of these creations and making sure the real work happens, because otherwise, yeah, the stories are going to fall apart in the years to come. Great, thank you. And Seth? Well, now I'm in a quandary, because it's like, well, I, I was going to cut it just to one last... <laughs> But I'm, I'm happy to go ahead and just say, you know, you, you mentioned, Steve, that there's something on the horizon that isn't public yet for your coming back around to DC Comics. But is there any way you can potentially allude to it using nonspecific words that also might uh, give us something to sort of, you know, play with a bit, probably never even get close to. And yet at the same time, when we read it, we'll be like, oh, yeah, that's exactly what he meant. Because now well, that, you know, it's... <laughs> well, I'm not... <laughs> without asking you. I'm not back in a big way. So let me say that first of all. Like, when I, when I went freelance in January, that was for real. So right now, like, I'm not doing any big stuff there. Um, but that said, if you're looking... If you look at December solicits, it'll be in December solicits. So you'll find it very soon. But the one thing I will say is that I'm getting to work with characters that I had never gotten a chance to work with. Uh, when I was at the company, and I have written almost everyone, so so that that should be uh, perhaps a bit of a Quixotic journey for you guys. But but there is an answer. Like I, almost everyone in this book is someone I've never gotten to write before, uh, and I have written a lot of people at DC, so maybe that will narrow it down. Uh, and and it is an event tie-in as well, so like that's been fun. I mean, we know what event you're on right now. Uh, but it's been fun because it's both characters I've gotten to never gotten to write before, but much like my original stuff, like we're in the dark multiverse, so so we can go as wild as we possibly want. So it has been an incredibly fun book, uh, and, and I really can't wait for you guys to see it. And you'll see uh, at least what it is uh, when December solicits. <laughs> wow. Okay, so you should at some point do one of those master classes on teasers. Cause that just tickled my brain in all the best ways. Like the idea of like, okay, so wait a minute, there's characters you haven't written. Let's start going through that. And then it's a tie in. And then you've got the dark multiverse, you know, possibilities, which are endless. That that's, that's pretty good without giving too much away, you know, of, of anything specific, it's got me going. So how many different ways can I, you know, explore this? That, that was a really perfect answer, Steve. Thank you. Um, I'm gonna actually ask you, I know you're busy. Do you want one more round of questions or did we, yeah, we can, wrap yeah, we it can, up? We can definitely do one more. You are, I'm gonna just say thank you. Kendra, you're up next. <laughs> <laughs> um, when it comes to, I'm, I'm gonna switch away from Commanders in Crisis because I feel like I've been on that this entire interview and I apologize. But 
when it comes to everything that you've written for all of the writing that you've seen, because in the intro from Dandidio, we get to, to meet you a little bit, which is really cool. And it says that you are like a walking Wikipedia for DC. So here would be my question for somebody who has that mental capacity. What is one trope that you see being used a lot that needs to go away? And what is one that should be amped up a little bit more in the world of comics? Um, well, you're asking me to criticize both my potential big ticket publishers now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, not, not criticism, just in general it doesn't even have to pertain to any specific um i'm uh, yeah okay so I i'm sick of the impetus to push the goalposts back uh and, and i'm not going to name any names but that is to say like it's become a very common thing to say oh well this ultimate evil this ultimate thing that you thought was like the final boundary uh, well, now my thing is even bigger and more evil. And, and, even, and the thing about that is, and that has, that's at, at almost all companies, um, you know, and, and the thing about that is, is I worry that, like, you're so far away from relatable stakes uh, that, that I feel that, what are these stories even about? Like, I'm a guy who loves Grant Morrison stories that are about, like, stopping Darkseid by singing. But like what's, what happens sometimes is like so many leagues past that. Uh, and also without the sort of like cultural or sociological learning to have it sort of actually work. And so I feel like it's just big, but it's also almost, it, it almost bigs itself into nothingness. Uh, and, and I think that that can be an easy trap to fall into. Like we don't need to say, Unless there's a real story reason, I don't think you, you constantly have to keep pushing the goalposts back, broadening the horizon just for the sake of saying mine's bigger. Uh, because you know what? Like, character is what matters. I recently rewatched Unbreakable, and I was shocked to see that, you know, this is a movie where Bruce Willis bench pressing, like, two cans of cement feels enormous. It feels cosmically big. And I was almost moved to tears by it. And, and, and he's in his basement bench pressing. And it feels huge because people take the work with the characters to make it matter. And I feel like I want more of that. I want more investigating characters and more of that type of interplay. Uh, and, and less, and it feels weird for me because I'm doing a big cosmic thing but at the same time, like Commanders in Crisis is still just set on one Earth. It's not about like, it's not about like the multiverse of the multiverse or whatever nonsense phrase like someone wants to bring up. And there's nothing wrong with those things, but I feel like it's almost being just done on principle to mark your territory versus actual, actual story reasons. Uh, and so I'm not a huge fan of that. Um, and conversely, yes, what I want to see more of is, is, is character interplay and, and a knowledge that, you know, any story can be big if the tensions are right and the stakes are, and the emotional stakes are right. Um, and, you know, like, there's a reason, I think, on some level that the Boahaha era of Justice League is highly lauded. It's not because, like, you know, the, the, the omniverse is, is on the line every issue. It's because you love those characters as people. 
And I think that both DC and Marvel are incredibly rich tomes of, 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 of characters that are waiting to be loved. And we need to spend more time showing people why they, that should be so. Um, and in doing that, you take characters that are maybe thought of as C or D or F list and you elevate them because people finally see them the way that you do. Uh, and that brings value to, to the universes in a way that I'm not sure that just a, you know, I mean, I'll say it like a dick measuring type concept is, 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 is really going to help anything in the long term. So that's sort of my thought. You know, we don't, people love to go big, 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 and big is, can be fun, but it really only is fun if we know why we care. And sometimes I think we lose sight of that. I don't really think I could agree more with that answer. Thank you for that. That was not only eloquent, but it was very well worded. And I like both sides of the spectrum that you picked up on. So thank you. Uh, Brad? Also, in that introduction, uh, Dan describes you as somebody who loves comics, really, really loves comics. Uh, and I'm curious what sparked that love and when did you know that you were kind of obsessed with comics? Um, I mean, I had been reading comics since I was a young, really young kid in the 80s, but it was all stuff I was getting in like flea markets and stuff in upstate New York. Um, I think the real spark for me was probably, honestly, I, I had a couple of potential inroads, uh, but it was, I was all blocked by impenetrable events, you know, like I almost got in in 1992, but then the clone saga was happening and I was like, why is the jackal quoting leave its beaver? Who is the jackal? Who is spider side? What the f is this? And I was out again. Although I did think Scarlet Spider's ripped off hoodie looked really cool when I was seven, but, um, uh, five years later, I came to Grant Morrison's Justice League with Howard Porter, and uh, it was the sweet spot for me. You know, I, I actually got in because there were articles in the local newspaper about Superman forever turning electric, and his powers, his old powers were never coming back. And so I was like, oh, I need to get in on this, man. Like, new Superman, it's never going to change back. Incredible. So, uh, lol, I know. But... Uh, <laughs> and I got in, and that got and that got me into stores, and I and to this day, by the way, I still love that Electric Superman design. I put Strange Visitor in my Supergirl run solely so that I could buy a Robson Roca page featuring her, and it's currently in my office. So I will stand for Electric Superman till I fucking die. But uh, what engrossed me then was the the richness of the world. It was everything that I just said. There are endless characters and people to meet, and and stories to. to to discover and, and see a new light. And, and it, so it was the lore that brought me in, uh, first at DC and then at Marvel as well. Okay, great, thanks for that answer. Uh, Seth? That's a great answer. Uh, really love these questions, guys. You make it hard for me to try. Like, I think I've got a great question and then I'm like, no, no, I'm gonna. Steve, I'm gonna make this my last one, and it's it's just uh, something I like to try and think about for myself, and it's a conversation I've enjoyed with friends, which is that where do you what do you want to say you've done when there's a moment that you put down the pencil, put down you know the work for full time, and you do projects, but you've come to a point where it's like I've put in so many years or decades into my craft and. Now I can look back at what I've done, wh whatever stage you want to, and, and sort of say I've accomplished the following. Are there things that you still see 
you know, on the horizon that you would eventually like to look back on and say, these were things that I wanted to do and that I've done now and that I can, I can sort of know that this was a, a goal in my career and I can look back and say that, that I've accomplished it. Well, first of all, I hope there's still some things on the horizon because I'm only 35. Uh, so it'd be pretty early to retire. I would think so too, but I imagine for me, it's always that thing, you know, the, the sitting down with the old dog on the, the bench, like, okay, I'm, I'm kicking 85, 90. I'm not trying to do everything I was trying to do when I was 30 and 40. And this is what I've accomplished when I, when I look back at that. Um, well, it'll be interesting to see what I think then. Uh, but the, the reality is like, I don't have a single answer now because that's also how every new project forms for me. Uh, and this started even before I was in a DC. I was with my book, Virgil. I left this movie and I was like, it'd be really great if someone did this. And I was like, wait, what the f am I saying? I'm going to do this. And, and that's sort of been how most of my originals, there's a shitload coming out this year and next year. Um, and it's more complicated, obviously, because you're Marvel. Like, yeah, we all sit here like, this is what I would do. With but then you have to actually get that offer. But with originals, it's like, you know, my book, Kill a Man, which is coming out from Aftershock this year, and I'm probably my favorite thing I've done to this point. Uh, it's like, well, I, I wanted this story. I want this story to exist. Um, so I'm just going to do it. You know, like, why wait for someone else? Especially when I'm, when, when we're, I'm now in a position of privilege where I can, I can reach out to publishers and say, well, this is something that I'd like to do. Can we get on board? So that sort of goal of I want, something should exist uh you know that having those sort of goals each book that i do is like that uh and and it's the achievement of like each book is a whole i see in the industry where i'm saying this is a thing that should exist this is a thing i think would provoke people's thoughts or make them happy and so rather than sitting here waiting for i don't know my my usual uh my usual t good friend and target like you know Tom King to do it. I'm going to do it. And I love Tom, by the way. I just love busting his balls. So, um, <laughs> busting, mm. busting his pops, excuse me. So, um, you know, like why wait for anyone else to do it? I'm doing it. So, so the, the, the drive you're describing is how every single one of my originals comes to pass. Uh, and so I can't really say what it'll be when I'm hypothetically 85 but i know that that question that asking myself it now that's how i get up every day and bust my ass and do this for you all uh so there'll probably be a lot of answers provided i'm lucky enough to live that long if i'm lucky enough to sit down with you and have a conversation about that all that would be a, a great gift but i think your answer is perfect i love the idea that that's you know part of the drive for you to do each one of these projects it's like no one else no one else is doing it. I want to do it. It should be done. Let's get it done. And then that moves on to the next. Uh, I, I think there are plenty of us. I mean, I'm hearing it right now and going, I could do that, right? There's actually nothing stopping me. And I think for anybody listening, that's an amazing thing to consider. The thing you want to do, you can actually do it. There's, you know, there's only you stopping you from making it happen. That's a, a huge thing to consider, Steve. Great answer. Thank you. I, I also just want to say thank you for taking all this time with us. I really appreciate the fact you were able to extend with us. I know you've got a busy uh, work day. We're going to go ahead and just uh, wrap things up with a couple of notes about the show and then close out this interview. Does that sound okay with you? Sounds okay with me, for sure. <laughs> awesome. Folks, you've been listening to the amazing Steve Orlando here on DC Comics News Podcast. 
Uh, this has been a really great special interview. I've been your host, Seth Singleton. I've been joined by the amazing Kendra Hale and Brad Felicki. If there's anything you heard from anyone on this podcast, you would love to hear more about. I'm going to start with you, Steve. Is there a best place people can reach out, follow up with you, ask questions, contact you uh, without, you know, being more annoying than anyone else is on social media? I mean, in my opinion, like if I'm on there, it's to be reached out. So no one is ever annoying. Uh, I don't really, you know, the only thing I don't really answer is Facebook messages. Like that's my small island I've carved out for just people who know me in private life. But yeah, I mean, I'm on Twitter at the Steve Orlando. I'm on Instagram at the Steve Orlando. Uh, and like, hey man, I'm there. So it's never an annoyance. Um, awesome. If you think I'm an asshole, just make it funny. <laughs> uh, I, which is true, by the way. Like, I, I, had, I had posted what the fuck did I post recently? And this is—I'm not even like punching down because I was just entertained by it. Um, I posted like that. Uh, some people think that I'm unapproachable, and that's a common criticism I get from my friends. So it's real. And this this site like retweeted me and was like, "Hey, man, it's okay. So was your Wonder Woman run?" And I wasn't even angry. That was like a solid burn. Uh, <laughs> And I said, like, I don't care. Like, just just make it entertaining. Like, you know, celebrity meme tweets. All you can do is laugh at those things. Uh, if you take it too seriously, then then you are a asshole. So, you know, good opinion or bad opinion, just make it entertaining and come and find me there. That's awesome. Um, you've also we've also had some great questions uh, from my co-hosts here. Kendra, where can anybody find you if they want to ask questions about anything you talked about on here or anything else they might hear you say? <laughs> if anybody wants to find me, Twitter is probably the easiest way. Uh, my Twitter handle is dev at devourallwords. And I, Steve, not only thank you, but I do look forward to seeing your list of recommendations for reads. So, Brad, where can they find it's you? It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, uh, FlickyB1. Uh, and you can find me writing news and reviews, DC Comics News, and here on the DC Comics News podcast and the Mad Love podcast. And Steve, I want to thank you also for uh, coming on and talking to us today. It's my pleasure. And Seth? And I've been your host, Seth Singleton. You can find me, uh, you know what, just type Seth Singleton into a search bar. Now, uh, you can also find me on Twitter as one more Singleton or... Uh, well, I'm just about anywhere else, but start at DC Comics News. Start here at the podcast. Just a reminder, if you're listening, you can find DC Comics News podcast, all your major podcast platforms. Uh, we're on the big ones. We're on the small ones, Google, Apple, Stitcher, Breaker. Uh, you can also let us know about any questions you want to ask for the whole DC Comics News podcast team. You can find us on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram, all you need is at DC Comics News. That's at capital D, capital C, capital C, O-M-I-C-S, capital N-E-W-S. Let us know what you're thinking. We'll make sure everybody gets a chance to hear the comment, the question, and get back to you as quick as possible. Beyond that, this has been an amazing conversation. There's only one other thing we usually uh, say at the end of this, and before I preface that, just Steve, to echo everyone else, Thanks for taking all the time you did. Thanks for your amazing questions. Thanks for the great insight. It, it was really wow. a, a wonderful conversation. It's my pleasure. Thank you. And our final statement here, whenever we end one of these podcasts, is to always... Read. More. Comics. And that's been it, folks. DC Comics News Podcast with Steve Orlando. Thank you. 
talk to you soon.